Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. St. Paul to the Romans. Or the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How incomprehensible are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him that recompense should be made him? For from him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. So far, the words of this day's Holy Gospel. Now therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are words taken from the Gospel of today's Holy Mass, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, Norman Rockwell is well known to have been the artist that captured the spirit of America past in many of his famous paintings. In one of these paintings, there is the picture of a petite, older, proper lady at the butcher shop looking up at the scales weighing the purchase she has just made with her finger under the scale pushing up to lighten the weight of her purchase while on the other side of the counter is an equally proper butcher looking at the same scale with his thumb pushing down on the scales to make it a little heavier and you might say that this is a bit of americana how true this seems to be in our exchanges when we consider the seventh and the tenth commandments. How we excuse so easily little ways of cheating, of stealing, of dishonesty that is taken for granted as part of life. Now it is true that with this exchange of dishonesty things somehow seem to find their proper balance in spite of our dishonesty towards one another, and we want to consider what are our obligations with regards to these commandments, because we do tend to take these commandments rather lightly. Everybody does it, it's easily excused, and therefore we get a little lax, and we want to pull ourselves back in line with regards to the service of God and keeping his commandments, as he told us, so that we will then live as children of God with the honesty, uprightness, and holiness of children of God. Now in our lesson on the seventh and tenth commandments, because they do come together, like the sixth and the ninth commandments, one dealing with external sins, other the internal sins of our minds and thoughts, so too the seventh and tenth commandments deal with external 
as well as internal thoughts that we will review now very briefly as we take this com these commandments. Now, what does God forbid in the seventh commandment? In the seventh commandment, God forbids all dishonesty, such as stealing, cheating, unjust keeping of what belongs to others, unjust damage to the property of others, and the accepting of bribes by public officials. Now, this is sort of an overview of what we will be considering in more detail as we go forward. But from the book of Leviticus of the Old Testament, we have these words of Almighty God. Do not any unjust thing in judgment, in rule, in weight, or in measure, let the balance be just and the weights equal, the bushel just and the sextery equal. These are measurements according to accepted standards that should be just for all. The seventh and tenth commandments are treated together because both deal with commands about property. The seventh commandment refers to external acts and the tenth to intentions or desires against honesty. One who is starving, however, may take what he absolutely needs. Now this is important because as we say often, we must live with reason guided by faith. Now, man has no absolute right to any property. Only God has absolute right to what he has created. It belongs to him. But he has given its use over to us according to the title we acquire by working for what we possess. But if somebody is destitute and starving, he has a right, a strict right, to receiving enough food, even if he just takes it, to eat to keep his life. Now, if he can do otherwise and work for that, then he should do so. Now, Victor Hugo wrote a book, a novel, a classic, actually, though it's on the forbidden list of books. Nevertheless, in the uh, story, the man who is starving at night has no means of eating, and he breaks a bakery store window to take a loaf of bread, and he's caught, and he's sent to prison for many years for stealing a loaf of bread in that condition of starving. He had a right, though he should not have broken the window, but if that was necessary, that he make up for it, but that he had a right to eat in order to keep his life, keep alive. And in this light, we learn to share with those who are needy, to help them so that they will have enough to get by with, encouraging them to sustain themselves, of course, but if necessary, to remember that there is no absolute dominion that forbids him whatever is necessary to retain his life. <coughs> this permission, though, must be used only in rare and extreme cases when all other means have been exhausted. So in America, this very seldom should come up. But regardless, we know that in re, uh, relationship to the Ten Commandments, seventh commandment in particular, a person has a right to sustain his life if there's no other means in order to do so. 
The obligations regarding honesty are imposed on us in conscience. We have this before God in our minds to be honest, to be just, to be fair, even though the civil laws may not compel us. As I said, we are a nation of laws, and what the law is is what guides us. If they change the law, then we are guided by that changed law. The Supreme Court in past times has made decisions that imposed a law upon everybody and then in due course has changed that law and removed that obligation to obey that law. Now, not all human laws are just. Not all human laws are moral. We know that it is now permissible when at one time it was not permissible to have an abortion to take the life of an unborn baby. Today that law permits it. And though it is permissible, legally it is immoral and sinful to take the life of an unborn child. There is no excusing cause. It's very difficult and strict. And it is a burden sometimes, but nevertheless an obligation imposed upon us by God. Life is not fair. Life sometimes seems to be cruel, but God in his infinite wisdom knows how he disposes everything and where the lines fall, that is what he has permitted, and we live within these lines. Now, we learn to take advantage that is there to turn them to good, to turn these situations. Remember, St. Paul says, weakness is made strong in infirmity. If we didn't have a challenge, if we didn't have an infirmity, then we would remain where we were. But as we struggle, we grow stronger. And this then becomes a blessing rather than a curse. Take heed then, uh, St. Luke tells us, and guard yourself from all covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So what's the capital sin here? covetousness, materialism, seeking after this world's goods inordinately. When a man lives only for this world and only for the things of this world, he's out of balance. And his importances then become material as opposed to spiritual. I told a young boy recently uh, that sometimes poverty is riches. Poverty that frees you from concern of how to protect your goods, where to store them, how to dispose of them, uh, and to be concerned about them to take away from other things that are more important in life, to pray, to study, to read, to think, to have opportunities to help and do good to others because of the possessions that consume your attention or your desires. That's a poverty of spirit, therefore, that is negative. <coughs> Whereas um, riches of this world is poverty in the spiritual sense, and poverty in the spiritual sense is really a riches compared to the priorities of over and above the things that we sometimes exaggerate and accumulate to excess. So I told him, I said, someday if I get poor, I want to have a car just like that rich man's over there. If I get poor in spirit in the sense that I no longer want to be satisfied with what I have and I want more, then I will grow poor rather than rich in spiritual things and become rich in material things and poor in the spiritual. So again, 
we have to keep these values in mind, not to be avaricious, but to be good stewards of the things that God has given us. Now, you get title to the things you possess from the work that you do to obtain it. St. Thomas Aquinas has told us that is the proper means of distribution of God's gifts that he has. Some receive more, some receive less, some have greater opportunities, some less opportunities to uh, enrich themselves in a material sense, but above all, to keep a spiritual poverty, not to be attached to them too strongly, not to seek them too... Um, preciously, so to speak, and first to priorities, but to use them as God allows them to be accumulated for the welfare of others as good stewards for our own spiritual accounting that we will make for all things on this earth, even for every word we speak. Violations of these commandments are opposed to natural law and justice and are an attack on society, a menace to public security and peace. And people start wanting what you possess, then you are in danger. Then you have to protect yourself. And we can see how it becomes divisive and pulling apart. Whereas if there is an uprightness and an honesty of word, of action, then we can trust one another and we can produce more spontaneously in uh, greater abundance that which we have to share with one another. And any violation, therefore, takes away from this and diminishes this until we become static. We can't move ahead or do anything except just protect the little that we do have. Now, what are the chief violations of the Seventh Commandment? The chief violations of the Seventh Commandment are the following. First of all, stealing or theft, which is the secret taking of another person's property. It's there, it's unattended, and it's taken, and nobody knows who took it. Few sins are more common than theft. How often is excused, and I've heard this uh, from some good people even, if I don't take it, somebody else will. It's right there in public view, so let me take advantage of the first one to take it, because if I don't, it's going to be taken anyhow. It's still wrong. If it belongs to another person, it should not be taken as one's own possession. If it's to be taken to give back to the owner because it's vulnerable, there is a good intention. So again, you see, in back of it all is the Tenth Commandment with the intention in, involved that makes it right or wrong. If it's lost, a reasonable search must be made for the owner, and then if it's not claimed, it may be possessed as uh, available but not without an effort to, make, uh, to, to find the owner. Those who like to show themselves off in luxury but have not the means frequently resort to theft um, for needs. Drug users are notorious for stealing things to pay for their drug habit. Uh, others, they like good clothes and uh, they will shoplift. They'll take things secretly uh, in order to sell and to possess or buy what they really want to show off to others. Uh, sometimes people get into this quicksand of human respect, of what people think of them, and they become generous to the point of taking what does not belong in, in order to give it away to appear more generous. One must be very careful in avoiding even petty thefts, small thefts or he will contract a vice. It does grow. 
evil grows, like good will grow, so evil will increase. And in a short time, will find himself stealing more valuable things. Begin with a little and begins to grow into a lot without realizing since it's less uh, sensitive than it used to be to think of the wrongness of a small theft, that a large theft now doesn't seem to be as bad either. I remember a uh, as a child an incident in my own life going to grammar school when they were taking up a collection for community chest in the classroom and I was very, very young. I didn't know the value of money, but I didn't have any to give. But at home I was able to reach into a bureau drawer above my head not knowing what was there and fished up a few coins which I brought to school. I don't know if they were pennies or nickels and the teacher recognized me and wrote my name down in a book and I was pleased to have something to give and the next day I fished around and found something else, another coin, a quarter, and brought that. The teacher hesitated to accept it but accepted it and the third day I brought some more and she refused. Now I was in a problem of uh, how to get it back and I kept it in my pocket not to lose it. I had my hand around it in my pocket and my mother asked, what do you have in your hand? And I said, nothing. I showed the other hand. What's in your pocket? And so she found out that I had some money that didn't belong to me, that had been taken from the bureau drawer. And regardless of the fact I'd given it to community chest, she gave me a licking I never forgot, even to this day, for which I am grateful because it kept me from becoming a bank robber or whatever might have come down the road. So. I am grateful to my mother for having taken it at the beginning and stopped it when it could have got out of hand by excusing it as well, it's just a child or it's not important, it was for a good cause, but she saw that it was wrong and it had to be treated as such. Perhaps today she would have been accused of child abuse perhaps, but it was a great thing that was done and I appreciate it. Now, robbery is the open and forcible taking of another person's property, at gunpoint, for example. Robbery or stealing is a slight or grave sin according to the injury done. Now, a traumatic injury, of course, is uh, to be calculated as well. But here we come to an important general principle in regards to morality, the right and wrong of things. It depends upon the intention or in this case, the evil done from the act presented. For example, it's always wrong to tell a lie. But the seriousness of the lie is taken from the harm that's done by the lie. If it's a small harm, the venial sin. But it's still a sin. If it's a great harm done, say under perjury, calling God to be witness to what you're saying as the truth, which it is not, becomes an act of um, sin, a sin against God and is a serious sin. So too in stealing, the amount taken would determine whether it's serious or small. To steal a nickel would be a sin, but it's a small sin. To steal $500 is a sin, but it's got grave matter. Now, here's where the moral theologians have to step in and say, now where is the line to be drawn from a harm done between a venial and a mortal sin. Now, moral theologians are people like you and me. They've been trained more and they know the principles, but they still have to make a judgment. Now, some moral theologians are a little more strict on determining where the venial and the mortal sin might be. 
Now, the problem generally that we come up with across the board is doubtful matters. We're not really sure. And you'll have some theologians who are very strict, like Redemptorists used to be. They were fire and brimstone in the past, and you just don't do these things or else. Whereas there are other theologians who give more leeway and say, well, maybe that's a little strict. You could go this far and still be safe. Others would be perhaps as far as you could ever allow anything. But there are different schools of thought among the moral theologians. And each one has to pick for himself, really, what is the safer course. In every serious doubt that deals with the mortal sin, we then must always take the safer course. But what is the safer course? Here's where you have differences of opinion. Now, in confession, even though the priest may be very strict in his own determination of the safer course, he must allow the penitent the widest view that is permissible in the teachings of the church. If it's taught in the seminary, regardless of what seminary it is, if it's allowed, then it can be applied, though you may not use it for yourself. And even for the penitent, they can have the benefit, which then comes from another principle which says when things are difficult and hard, irksome, burdens, they're to be strictly interpreted, strictly, uh, interpreted according to the letter of the law, exactly no more. But it says that's what you have to do. Then, beyond that, you're not bound. When there are privileges and benefits and blessings, then you can interpret that as widely as you can as permitted to have the extension of these benefits. So, difficult things are restricted, benefits are expanded. And where we draw the line sometimes will differ from one person's opinion to another. And we have to allow this leeway of freedom when things are doubtful. Now again, another set of principles, when things are clear and certain, there should be unity. No question, no arguing. When things are doubtful, then you have freedom to assess and to choose. Nobody can be bound by your opinion since there's freedom it remains doubtful, not clear. Now, this will solve a lot of our problems as traditionalists as to whether the Pope's the Pope, whether the Novus Order Mass is valid or not. You're going to have different opinions. But above all things, we should have charity, patient, kind, uh, rejoicing in the truth, uh, seeking the truth, uh, not rejoicing in evil, um, merciful. We, we need all these virtues that St. Paul talks about as what charity is. In the application of these moral principles that are to determine rightness or wrongness, sin or not, venial or mortal. Even theologians don't agree sometimes. And sometimes a person cannot even tell himself whether he's consented to something that's evil or wrong or not. Temptation is a varying uh, alternative consideration of should I or shouldn't I. Now, did I or didn't I? If a person can't answer that question, how can a confessor or how can a theologian? And sometimes the theologian doesn't understand the situation and he says, um, I can only leave it to God's judgment. It's the best we can do. And sometimes a priest will say in confession, as God judges you, so do I, which is not very specific, but it resolves a serious situation of doubt that has to be 
uh, made cl clear and definite. So a penance is assigned accordingly, but probably a little bit more lightly than when it is clear and definite. So stealing a day's wages from a person is usually a mortal sin. Well, where do you draw a line between a poor person and a rich person? To steal uh, $20 from a poor person could be a mortal sin. To steal $20 from a rich person would not necessarily be a mortal sin, though it's wrong. So moral theologians in the past used to say that $100 is an absolute amount that would be a mortal sin no matter from whom you took it. But if it's from a poorer person, then it de depends upon what his daily needs are. And a working man, it's serious to take a day's wages away from him. So that would be a mortal sin. We call that subjective, according to the individual situation. Whereas across the board, objectively, there is a certain amount, and moral theologians will determine that according to the value of money, inflation, and all of that, which varies from um, year to year, you might say. So how do we determine? It's difficult, but there is some sort of application to take the safer course. But not all sins are equally sinful. Protestants say a sin is a sin no matter if it's big or small, it's a sin and therefore it's wrong, which is true, but they don't have a doctrine of uh, sanctifying grace that is based upon our cooperation with God. They say Christ has redeemed you, therefore you're saved and the things that you do will uh, rob you of your right to heaven unless uh, you lose your faith in the merits of Christ. We say, no, we have to cooperate and keep the commandments of God that he has taught us. And we receive our graces accordingly. And if we break the commandments, we lose the grace of God. And we are liable to eternal punishment. So we want to know then the difference between a venial or mortal sin or whether we've sinned at all. And you have to be the theologian to determine for yourself whether you've done right or wrong to know ahead of time what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes we get into areas that are a little cloudy, but take a safer course and you'll be on the safe side of things. Stealing even a small amount, very small amount from a poor person is a mortal sin. A person has only a dollar in his pocket, you take that, you've taken everything, and that's a mortal sin. A number of different small thefts from the same person or different persons within the space of one or two months and amounting to a considerable sum may be a mortal sin. Notice it says may. It doesn't say is. Again, uh, what is the intention? If a person is working in a store and he has an opportunity to steal $5 that nobody will notice. The next day comes and he has a chance he steals another $5. Now he doesn't intend to steal $150 at the end of the month, but it turns out that way. His intention would be small thefts accumulated as many venial sins. But if he intended to save, save up for a certain thing like he wanted a bicycle or a motorcycle, and I'm going to steal a little at a time to get this amount, he's already coalesced that value into a large amount and it's a mortal sin. You say, is that nitpicking? No, it's some determination to know what is right and what is wrong and the restitution therefore that has to be made in accordance with the seriousness of the crime committed. Cheating is depriving another of his property by crafty means, by trickery. A lot of that goes on in advertising, in buying and selling, uh, receiving shoddy goods as represented as being quality, uh, 
this is going on, it's taken for granted almost. And we are caught in a dilemma sometimes, and this is a very practical situation. Well, if he's done it to me, therefore I can do it to him. Well, we have what we call occult restitution. If someone has taken from you something of value and doesn't return it, you have a right, after exhausting all the other normal means, to take something of equal value back again. And it is not stealing. It is restitution that you've taken through occult means of getting back your own property or the value thereof. If you st st stole it from him and he doesn't owe it to you, then it is stealing and it is wrong. Now, included in cheating are using false weights and measures in business, issuing counterfeit money, using uh, or adulterating food and other products for sale, forgery, falsification of documents. Does that go on? Uh, false identification, smuggling, tampering with boundary lines, overcharging, excessive profits, arson with a view to collection, collection of insurance money, and so on and so on. Remember, it deals with honesty and fairness. When I was in the seminary, we had classes that had to come together to study from the same professor because uh, we didn't have enough classrooms and enough professors to cover that particular subject. So we started out our first year in our class with... Uh, an advanced subject in moral theology. It was called justice. Their first year in moral theology was a very difficult, long, detailed study of justice which dealt with contracts, all the different kinds of contracts, all the different ways of breaking this particular commandment. When we finished our last year, our fourth year, we ended up in that subject of the first year, really, which was called on the principles of moral theology. We put the cart before the horse, but we had the cycle courses, and where you came in is what you had to take, and then you finished out eventually the four years, even though it was not in succession. But our first year was very hard, very boring, actually very difficult, and it dealt with these strict matters of justice. You know, it's called the mathematical virtue. What is taken has to be restored. Totally complete in, a actu in a, uh, actually or exactly. Copying during an examination, is that cheating? Yes. Or copying the work of another and presenting it as one's own, it's called plagiarism, is also cheating. By it, one obtains credit for what does not belong to him and often gets what justly belongs to another. Copyrights are a form of property that must be respected. Now, um, Remember, a copyright basically protects the right of a person to obtain recompense for his invention or for his work, whether it's literary or otherwise, and we must respect it. Now, if we can't get to the person, we need something, I would say his intention would be to allow you to have one copy, but not to make a profit on his work, to use for the benefit of others. So again, reason, guided by faith, has to enter into the equation and those who are more uh, scrupulous would never dare. Others who are more um, equitable, so to speak, in their assessment of situations would be permissible, but again, not in a great extent. That would be wrong.
usury is the charging of excessive interest uh, or on money. A usurer takes unjust advantage of the need of another in order to make excessive profits. A uh, man is in great need and he needs it right now and the man selling him sees that he needs it so he raises the price. Or he needs a loan and nobody will give it to him so he exacts a greater amount of interest for granting this loan. Uh, it's excessive interest that is considered here and the means to take advantage of an opportunity of, of duress, of uh, necessity, of great necessity on the part of the one who um, needs the money or the uh, item. Under the appearance of helping the needy, a usurer involves them in greater hardships, taking from them their means of livelihood. So this is the wrongness of usury to exploit something from someone who has no alternatives. Another form of dishonesty is cornering the market, which consists of buying up the entire supply of one product, such as wheat, for the purpose of forcing up prices and thus making excessive profits. Well, these are big companies. <clears throat> but what about the local grocer or the um, gasoline station? If there's a short supply, he's going to raise his prices excessively. During the Second World War, we remember how people were charged exorbitant prices for items that were scarce. And after the war, people retaliated by not patronizing these grocers who took advantage of the situation. But in the meantime, they had to pay in order to get what they wanted. And that was dishonest. Unjust damage done to the property of others is against the seventh commandment. One may injure another's property by setting it on fire, treading down his crops, fishing or shooting on his grounds without permission, pulling down fences, defacing books, furniture, and buildings, giving out that it was dishonest. One who does willful damage to another's property must make good the loss. There's restitution. And if there's an accumulation of value in the process of stealing something, that accumulation also has to be returned. Accidental damage need not be made good unless it came about through culpable negligence. Now, sometimes people are taken to court and they're forced to pay something that was an accident, and he has to obey that judgment. But morally, if, say, for example, a child left his wagon behind a car in the driveway and the driver did not see it through the rearview mirror, uh, and he damages the wagon, he's not bound to restore the wagon. It was the negligence of the child or the parents who were responsible for that particular accident. So there is no moral obligation. Thoughtless persons who pass through a farm sometimes pick fruit, vegetables, or corn. Some travelers have the bad habit of taking towels, dishes, pe um, pens, and other things from trains, boats, and hotels as souvenirs. So, well, everybody does it, but it's still wrong. And what happens is we all suffer because if uh, there's shoplifting going on, the owner of that business is going to raise his price to cover the items that have been stolen. And who pays the extra price but the customers who are honest? So I'd say this is the way I have come to assess transactions that if something costs a certain price, be ready to pay double that price. Be ready. doesn't mean that you have to because if the thing breaks down, you have to buy it again, uh, you're paying more than you first expected. If you pay the regular price, consider it a bargain if it lasts, if it's uh, no longer needed to be replaced or repaired, uh, you're ahead on that score. 
Uh, I have found in my experience, and probably you have in yours, that if you take your best estimate of what it's going to cost in time and money and labor, give it an extra one-third on top of that, and you'll come a little closer to the reality of what you're going to finally pay. So if somebody says he's going to take a day in doing a job, consider it two days that he's going to do it. And probably at the end of the day, he said, well, I haven't been able to finish. I'll have to come again tomorrow. Uh, don't get angry. Don't be put out. Uh, figure that's the normal thing. We tend to estimate short and be ready to estimate realistically by adding double, one-third to more. Uh, and then you won't be angry. You won't try to uh, retaliate to get even and so on. So be careful of this eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth uh, syndrome. Be generous. And your generosity will bring you peace of soul and bring you realism and bring you the uh, results that uh, you may have misestimated beforehand. Children pick flowers on other people's gardens. That's really wrong. Throw stones at houses, write on desks, walls, and fences. They should be taught not to injure the property of others. Well, everybody does it. Now, this is why we review these commandments so that we focus more correctly and clearly on what are our obligations in our religion to the service of God. Christ has told us. Teach them to, command, uh, to observe whatever I have commanded you. Public officials must be very careful not to accept bribes. They must guard against all signs of embezzlement. When you're in a position of authority, you have power, you have control, and you have opportunities. And it's very tempting to take advantage of extra money coming through these bribes or embezzlements or stealing uh, from the inside, so to speak. Officials are placed in office not to enrich themselves, but to serve the public. That's a general law from the Sermon on the Mount, to give more than you receive. And if you live by this principle, then you won't be an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth to keep the balance exactly strict because the strictness is that you're going to have to give more because of the friction of life, the misunderstandings, the failures to live up to promises and so on, that we must learn to give more time, more patience, more means, money, uh, than you first expect. They must treat all citizens fairly and justly. In a family, parents treat children fairly and equally. They should. Reject all dishonest efforts to sway them from honesty. Shun all kinds of speculation and be most careful in their duty. Now, this is ideal, but after all, our faith puts these ideals before us, and we strive for them. If we fail, we're sorry, and we strive again until we succeed. This is how we come to perfection. We're not born that way. We have to become that. It is a sin to contract debts beyond one's ability to pay, and not to pay debts, uh, and not to pay debts when due, even if able. So. You have a contract. You have an agreement. Don't wave it off because other people get away with uh, ignoring it. You uh, should not contract a debt you can't pay. Very young people should not go into debt. You're taught that in college, I'm told, to pay now, buy, buy now, pay later. Enjoy it now, then you can pay it later. And 
it's a very strong temptation. What happens though, it gets deeper and deeper into the debt by accumulating more and more than you can begin to pay off without realizing it. So I would say, make it a rule that you pay only what you can afford by the money you have on hand. If it's a big item, a home, a car, then you can contract an agreement to pay on time with a reasonable interest. But to make it a rule to buy things you don't have the money for is foolish. Most of them have not as yet any means of paying or of earning what uh, have no sure sh source from which to repay their debts. And don't expect your parents to pay it for you. They've paid their time. They've gone through their duties. It's up to you to likewise respect your obligations and to be patient in getting what you earn and purchase, therefore. It is very wrong to get into debt to satisfy a craving for amusement in order to buy more and more fashionable clothes and so on. But once in debt, to pay is a moral obligation. Now, we have bankruptcy laws, and that is very bad. People take advantage consciously, and that's immoral. We forgive debts after seven years. There was the sabbatical in the Old Testament, and we restart our lives again. But to do so in fraudulent dealing is immoral. But if you have a debt, then you must pay it. Employers who do not pay a just living wage defraud others and are guilty of injustice. Now, what is a living wage? Difficult, because it depends upon the manufacturer, his operation, his costs, and the price that he has to charge for his um, wares that the laborers produce for him. And if his margin of profit is very small, then the living wage is not going to be very excessive. Big companies can afford to pay more because they have a greater income. Small companies cannot pay as much. So the living wage is going to be determined not only in what the needs of the laborer are, but also what the ability of the manufacturer uh, to give has to be considered. And moral theologians have to determine this as to what is a living wage. A larger family requires more than a single person who does the same amount of work. Do we give more to the man with a large family who does as much work as the man who has no family or obligations? It's a question of difficult uh, dimensions to determine. Employees who waste time do bad work willfully or neglect to take reasonable care of their employer's property violate the seventh commandment. Now, in business, you'll find two kinds of people, those who work and those who talk. And the temptation for those who work is, well, if they're talking, why should I work to make up for the work they don't do? No, you work and do your duty. If they talk, they'll have to answer for what they didn't do. But they are unjust if they waste time on the job. And don't let that be an excuse for you to waste time on the job. So be fair and honest and upright in all these things. Another sins against the commandment uh, by the violation of business contracts. Now, when you sign your name, you're pledging to honor that contract. Be careful before you sign your name that you know what you're getting into. One may be guilty of dishonesty by obtaining money or goods from others for a specific purpose and then using the donated articles for other purposes, charitable causes, 
will um, have all these donations to give to the poor, but uses that money uh, for his own use. That's fraud, and that can happen. It's wrong and it's sinful. One who borrows books, instruments, and so on must take care of them and return them in proper condition and in the proper, uh, at the proper time. Carelessness in this matter is pretty rampant. We tend to be this way. Let's not be careless. Mark it and return it in due time in good condition. Children must not steal from parents. Oh, my father will let me have this. Or it's all right if my child does it. No, there has to be that sense of honesty with toys from child to child. It doesn't belong to everybody. It belongs to a specific who can lend it, can share it, but we must respect what is not mine belongs to the other person and must be taken care of properly. We learn that in the home and then we extend it after we leave home. Children must not steal from parents or keep change from parents. Went to the store, did, where's the change? Oh, I knew uh, you'd let me have it, so I spent it for candy. No, you cannot See, little beginnings are very tiny and they're very pervasive, very common, but we must learn how to control it lest it gets bigger and worse. And finally, buying or receiving stolen goods is a sin against the seventh commandment. Those who buy or receive stolen goods help to encourage thieves for the sake of gain. This includes, though, of course, that you know that it's stolen property. The one who buys it has to restore it to the one from whom it was taken. And if you know it's been taken, it's your obligation, as well as the persons who stole it and then profited and left you with the obligation. Receiving all or a portion of the estate of a deceased person contrary to the expressed wishes of that person in a will, for example, is a sin of dishonesty, even if done with the approval of civil courts, like breaking a will. What was the intention of the person that should be honored? And we can go on and on and on on the matter of dishonesty, particularly with regards to property, that deals with these two commandments. <coughs> We will continue next time with the reparation of damage to property and the social justice issue. But in the meantime, we have the commandments of God and they're important. And it is that we live according to these commandments to carry out the will of Christ who was sent into our world to teach us the truth and to bring us to his Father in heaven. Keep his commandments. His commandments will keep you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.